In this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. Live from a Montana wilderness fortress, Wednesday nights at 9 Eastern, this is the Matt Christensen Hour. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Matt Christensen and this is the Matt Christensen Hour on Tenet Media. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I am joined by my producer down under, Tim. G'day, Tim. G'day. Hope you've had a good day today. Uh, I have. You know, show prep, fatherly duties, your normal uh, tasks of the day. But uh, but yeah, uh, hope you had a good day as well. And uh no guests tonight, as you can see, but uh, we will take a tour through the news, as there is plenty of it. So um, we'll see if I can finally compete, uh, or complete, rather, the uh, the challenge of fitting everything I want to in an hour's time. I don't think I've done it yet, but we'll try. Uh, as we'll get to, that foreign aid uh, bill disguised as a border security bill is already basically dead in the Senate. By basically, I mean parts of it are still surviving, but the parts of it that are surviving are apparently the foreign aid stuff that was supposedly supplementary. Anyway, uh, clear demonstration of what the priorities are. Can't figure out the border. Not that it was a great border fix to begin with, but much better prospect at sending more money and resources to foreign countries and foreign wars. Cannot let Putin and the Houthis win. Your children will die uh, on a future foreign battlefield if we don't send them more money and stuff. Uh, Later in the show, I will discuss this Crumbly uh, conviction out of Michigan. Jennifer Crumbly is the mother of Ethan Crumbly, who's a convicted school shooter from 2021 school shooting outside of Detroit. She's now convicted. The mom is because of her supposed negligence in her in at least uh, accidentally aiding her son's actions, her failure to stop him. It's, it's a one-of-a-kind conviction. A parent of a, of a school shooter or a parent of a mass shooter never been uh, prosecuted or convicted in this way. As you can imagine, anytime there are novel legal theories coming specifically from anti-gun prosecutors, some concerns of precedent and principle that uh, ought to be considered. Plus, we'll take a look at uh, some email questions to close that we left over from last week. Again, appreciate your patience on that and super chats on uh, YouTube and Rumble as well. Before we get into the news, a little bit of housekeeping. Now, thank you to everyone who has been patiently waiting for audio feeds of the show. But those are up at least partially now. We have the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify I'm told there will be some additional platforms coming. Uh, I'll see what I can do about getting an RSS feed as well. Just plug that into your podcasting app of choice. But again, I know it's been a little bit. So thanks for patience from those of you who uh, prefer to listen to the show on audio platforms instead of the video show. And we hope to keep expanding ways to tune in. Yes, Tim. Yeah, just a little bit of housekeeping. I'm about to drop the links in the chat for anyone that wants to grab them now. So just letting people know. Also available, I've linked directly to uh, Apple and Spotify. Also available on my website podcast page. If you lose those links, just head on over there and you can find the audio feed for the show. Now, this seems like a hugely embarrassing headline, and it is. I'm not I'm not trying to say there's no embarrassment whatsoever, but when you look at the technicals, it's not quite as embarrassing as it seems. Still funny, though. 
Last night was the Nevada primary, and nobody's even heard of that because it doesn't matter for technical reasons that we'll get to that are difficult to understand. But headline NBC here, Nikki Haley loses to none of these candidates in the Nevada GOP primary. And it, that almost like it sounds like she won. She lost to nobody. But that's not what it means. It means she lost to nobody. Voters preferred nobody over Nikki Haley. Give us nobody, they said. Trump was actually not in this race, if you can call this a race. But Nikki Haley was running against nobody else who's still active in in the race. And with 88% of the vote in earlier today, Nikki Haley got killed by none of these candidates. That was the official vote. 63% and change for none of these candidates. 31% for Nikki Haley. She got doubled up. Now, in full context, this race matters none. Uh, Nikki Haley did not even try to win it. So that's why I say it's not quite as embarrassing as it sounds. If she had actually campaigned in Nevada and lost to none of these candidates, it probably would be a little bit more funny. Uh, Trump was not on the ballot because there was this Nevada primary last night. And that is in contrast to the Nevada caucus coming up tomorrow. And if you're like me and you wondered, why does this state have both a caucus and a primary? Well, for complicated legal reasons, uh, Trump will be competing in the caucus tomorrow. And that the caucus actually awards the delegates that are necessary to secure the nomination. Uh, the caucus is run by the Republican Party in Nevada, which will actually award those delegates. Yesterday was the state-administered primary in which none of these people beat Nikki Haley. Uh, there are no delegates at stake, even if she had one, so it doesn't really matter. But as far as why there is both a primary and a caucus, Nevada used a caucus system until 2021 when Democrats in the state legislature changed the law so that the state would now hold uh, a primary instead. And that primary includes, guess what? Early voting, voting by mail, all the Democrat uh, goodies. But the Nevada Republican Party opposes that. And so they're instead hosting their own contest under their own rules, hence the caucus of old. According to party rules, candidates cannot compete in both elections. So Trump, of course, is going to the caucus where the delegates are actually at stake and is not bothering with the primary because the primary is meaningless. It is uh, in law only. It doesn't matter. I'm totally unclear why Nikki Haley would opt to participate in the contest that doesn't count, but she did. There's got to be some reason for that, if only confusion. I don't know. Um, now, as far as why people would even show up to vote for none of these candidates, perhaps they hate Nikki Haley that much. I don't blame them if they do. But number two, a lot of these people actually got mailed ballots, so they didn't show up to vote for for not Nikki Haley against Nikki Haley. They actually got these ballots in the mail, and so they're returning. What Trump's not on here. I don't like Nikki Haley and none of these other people are even in the race. So none of these candidates, they picked that. That's how it happened. It sounds like voters in Nevada are just as confused as I am trying to understand the system. NBC here reports that thousands of voters have called state officials and party leaders asking why Trump was not on the primary ballot that they received in the mail. Uh, additionally, this is an interesting point of contrast with New Hampshire. Recall the New Hampshire primary, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Democrats and independents were showing up to vote Nikki Haley in large numbers. We saw that one guy on CNN interviewed outside of a, a polling place. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a Democrat. 
uh, I came here to vote for Nikki Haley against Trump. Well, how would you vote if it was a hypothetical Nikki Haley uh, Biden matchup in the fall? Well, I would vote Biden, of course. So there was a lot of that going on. It was data to support that. It wasn't just anecdotally that that one guy. But uh, MSNBC has some commentary about about how this event in Nevada is actually further demonstration of that. This is MSNBC's polling and elections analyst Steve Kornacki saying that Haley got killed in Nevada by none of these candidates. And that's further evidence that Republicans hate her. A huge portion of her support is just left wing anti-Trump voters. Haley, without Trump's name even on the ballot, still loses to the none option by better than two to one. So that's that is a tough reality for her. Not Trump is even on the ballot and she loses. And it's a closed primary. So it really reinforces yeah. what we've been seeing, that when you're just talking about Republican voters, she's really she's really getting clobbered with Republican voters, uh, it's and, independents and Democrats uh, that keep her in it. Nikki Haley's campaign did release a statement saying they aren't doing the caucus tomorrow because it's a it's a game rigged for Trump. That's what they say. And her campaign manager said they have not spent a dime or an ounce of energy on Nevada. Well, that's true. They spent it all in New Hampshire where they, again, didn't win. Not a lot left to spend after that. But if the caucus is rigged for Trump, was the primary then rigged for none of these candidates? Was it rigged for nobody in nobody's massive victory over Nikki Haley? Yes, Tim. Uh, I've got something to say after you've finished your, your, basically this whole topic. So oh, Okay. Well, the only other point I had was uh, a similar joke from uh, from David Axelrod. And I know he's uh, he's the Obama guy, but, you know, uh, a good joke is a good joke. He said, uh, given Nikki's insistence that Trump debate her, you got to wonder if she's rethinking her decision not to debate none of these candidates who, of course, defeated her decisively. So I don't know. Maybe Nikki Haley is st- strategically reevaluating. Uh, what were you going to say, Tim? So I'm going to have to push back a little bit on the idea. Well, it's not that embarrassing because I'd have to ask, in terms of when you when you found that Nikki Haley hadn't done campaigning, she hadn't spent money, is that something you knew offhand or did you have to specifically go looking for that information? Nobody, Nobody's seen her in Nevada because she hasn't even appeared there. She hasn't bothered. Okay. You know? I'm not saying it's that there's no embarrassment <laughs> in losing to none of the above because candidate recognition should be a thing. It's just... Uh, it's not as embarrassing as if she had put up an actual effort in that state. Right. That's, that's, but I I think I would also argue that it's hugely embarrassing because this is a national thing and she's now got to go to other States where she has to say to people, and they don't necessarily know that this means nothing. There's no delegates. All they see is why should we support you? You couldn't even be, you couldn't even beat a nameless ethereal blob of nobody. Well, yeah, but uh, she, she's one. she's so, content you know. to face the embarrassment of getting killed in her own state regardless. So I guess, yeah, anyway. I guess that's the point. But yeah, I do think it is hugely embarrassing for a couple of reasons. I do have to disagree that ah, it's not as embarrassing. No, I think it's pretty bad All personally. Right. Okay. We got we, we to move on to the Majorca stuff. Um, speaking of embarrassing moments, House Speaker Mike Johnson had uh well he had one last night and he 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 brought the two articles of impeachment against DHS secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for um his handling of the border that of course had passed the homeland security these two articles had passed the homeland security committee last week they're bringing it to a full house vote this week 
and it ended in a tie. At least it did until one Republican switched his vote in a procedural move. But it officially ended in a tie. And uh, that was because three Republicans defected. Tom McClintock of California, Ken Buck of Colorado, and Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. All Democrats, of course, voted in unanimous opposition to the uh, to the articles of impeachment, to advancing them. Um, now, technically, Blake Moore of Utah was also a no vote, but this was for a procedural reason to keep the move alive, actually. Uh, now, this vote actually included the surprise appearance of Congressman Al Green, who showed up straight from the hospital uh, after a surgery on Friday. Republicans said it's expected him to miss the vote, but uh, he showed up in a wheelchair and a hospital gown. And he made what turned out to be the decisive vote to save Mayorkas. Mayorkas isn't going to be removed from office anyway, but to save him from being officially impeached by the House for the moment. And Green says there was actually no Democrat Party strategizing. Uh, He was just watching the news Tuesday, he says. And he was compelled to defend the honor and reputation of Alejandro Mayorkas. So he talked to his doctors uh, and he got to the House chambers just in time. Now, some points on uh, this development. Number one, uh, bad politicking for new speaker Mike Johnson. You don't bring votes that you're not confident you'll win, of course. Either um, by his you know, by his own members, he didn't have confidence necessarily in how they were going to vote. Or through Al Green, this surprise move, he got sniped. Now, recall that the uh, the Republican majority is slimmer than it might otherwise be. Because, number one, George Santos was expelled. And whether you like the guy or not, and I don't, I don't think a lot of people do, but it's a separate question. The, the expulsion from, from office is its own separate question. He would have moved this impeachment along. Uh, because we know because he tweeted, miss me yet? With a picture uh, of the vote in the House chambers, uh, and, and that was his caption, do you miss me? Um, so, so yeah, uh, is George Santos a cringy liar? Sure. Is he facing campaign finance charges and other violations? Yeah. I think we're kidding ourselves a little bit to think he was some outlier in congressional dishonesty. The whole place is liars and frauds. And so, you know, I, I don't miss Santos the guy, but you have to wonder whether you miss, uh, the vote potentially and whether the strategy in ousting him was, was wise, even if you consider it principled. Uh, Number two, you had Kevin McCarthy retiring early and that seat out of California remains vacant until it's spring, uh, until it's uh, filled in the spring. Kevin McCarthy insisted, of course, previously when he was ousted as speaker that he would not leave early from Congress until he did. And as I discussed at the time, I think it's fair to question, did he make that move for some honorable reason or did he make that move because he had a bitch fit and wanted to sabotage who he viewed as his uh well his his enemies in congress particularly those who who joined Dem- democrats to oust him this isn't potentially an effect of that or maybe you believe mccarthy that he did this just to pursue other opportunities in which he can be more effective blah 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 well there's an empty seat there and that is having consequences And uh, he could have just finished out the rest of his term. Steve Scalise is out for medical reasons. 
what are you going to do about that? I guess I could demand he be the hero like uh, Al Green and show up in his gown, in his wheelchair. Steve Scalise has blood cancer. Give him an excuse on that. Supposedly he's coming back soon. Now, why did these Republicans defect? If you're curious about that, uh, it was reported ahead of time, and this is why Johnson made a pretty big mistake here. It shouldn't have been a mystery that he was losing several of these votes. It was known ahead of time that McClintock and Buck intended to vote no, which makes that a bad look for Johnson. Could have saved the vote until he had higher confidence in its passage. Uh, McClintock was a no because he says impeachment has to involve a crime and he doesn't see a crime here, just poor job performance. He believes impeachment for performance to be unconstitutional or outside of the constitutional intent for impeachment. Impeachment wasn't meant to settle political disputes. Ken Buck uh, said the same, that uh, charges against Mayorkas do not meet a crime threshold that he believes that the Constitution requires. Now, um, explaining why he voted no additionally is Mike Gallagher. And he offered a similar point. He says the impeachment would be would set a dangerous precedent that will be weaponized against future Republican administrations. It will only further pry open the Pandora's box of perpetual impeachment. Now, we don't have to imagine a future in which impeachment is weaponized. Of course, it's already here and it's happened twice and it will assuredly happen more, particularly if Donald Trump regains the presidency. But that would assume Democrats have the power to do it. If they do, they will do it again. Rest assured. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. The ideal is we don't take up this political weapon and stab each other in the back all the time. But Democrats are backstabbing away with it. And I suppose we could sit here and debate the principles of when it is and is not appropriate to use the knife. But we're sitting ducks getting stabbed by the knife in the meantime. So, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody wants to be the stabber, but the stabbing game has started. That's kind of the idea. Now, as far as um, Blake Moore's vote and why he switched, remember it was a 215-215 tie and it became a 216-214 rejection of the articles of impeachment for Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, Moore is and, and, well, he was and remains uh, a yes vote to impeach house rules uh, or by house rules, rather a tie goes or a tie means the vote goes down in defeat. It would be dead, but house rules also enable any member of the prevailing side of a roll call vote to move to reconsider. In other words, any member of the winning side can demand a revote. So more simply switched to the winning side or made a switch that would make the no vote the winning side where he can then revive the impeachment effort. So what will happen next? Well, that means it's not officially dead. Actually, the speaker can bring it back for another vote, which he says he'll do. Reports say uh, that is coming next week. But the same gamesmanship will still apply. You can count on Republican no's from Buck, McC uh, McClintock and Gallagher. They're not going to change. Blake Moore will flip back to a yes. Presumably Steve Scalise comes back or I don't know, maybe they won't have a vote until he is back. That would be the smart thing to do because you have no room here. In fact, I think he's going to have to, if my math is correct. Steve Scalise says he's coming back very soon. So I would assume they're going to do that with his help. But Republicans can only lose three votes to pass anything at full strength. You already have the three lost guaranteed. So that unless I'm my math is wrong, you're going to need Scalise and you can't lose anybody else. 
You got no wiggle room. If you're Speaker Johnson, you got to have everyone present. You got to have the confidence that everyone will vote yes. Didn't do a good job of that yesterday, so his whip cracking will have to improve for the second try. If you are historically curious, the last time this actually happened, the impeachment of a cabinet member was 1876, and it was Secretary of War William Belknap under the Ulysses S. Grant administration. He was impeached for corrupt kickbacks. He got money from a guy that he appointed to uh, to lead a trading out, uh, outpost in Oklahoma. Belknap was impeached unanimously by the House, then acquitted in the Senate, so he was not um, removed from office. And uh, that's, recall, of course, uh, removal from office would, would require a two-thirds Senate vote. Uh, zero chance that uh, Mayorkas, likewise, is getting convicted in the Senate. Uh, you could show that Alejandro Mayorkas is in MS-13, actually, and I don't think a single Democrat in the Senate would actually vote to convict him. I don't think a Democrat in the House would vote to bring the charges. Alejandro Mayorkas might be an MS-13. I don't know. I don't want to make a defamatory statement, but based on the way he runs the border, he might be an MS-13. So all of this, of course, is more symbolic than productive. It's not going to get Mayorkas out of office. But I, I don't say that to mean that it's completely pointless to do or that you shouldn't do it. Mayorkas is helping to destroy this country through an effectively open border. So if you're in the House, if I was a member of Congress and I know that he's not going to get removed by the Senate, well, you still do what you have the power to do. So I'm not mad at, at the House for doing that. It's just uh, if you're Speaker Johnson, you got to be you got to be more calculated in your approach. But I suppose uh, you, know, you can't be too tough on a guy who's that new to the job. But but man, that uh, that ended up being an embarrassing defeat for the guy. Uh, in another, I mean, I, you could call this an embarrassing defeat. What happened with the, uh, what's going on with the Senate alleged border bill uh, or alleged immigration bill? I don't think there's anything, in, well, the embarrassment is these is all of these people revealing their true priorities. I don't think there's any embarrassment in this bill being defeated. In fact, it should be because it's a, it's a mockery of uh, the American people, but maybe that's the point. And I feel stupid for not foreseeing that the secretly negotiated border bill that these select senators have been working on for weeks is actually just a giant Ukraine and Israel funding bill in disguise, because of course it is. They all are at this point. You wonder why Biden and company have been acting like they don't have the authority to secure the border now and they need some sort of additional authorization from Congress. Well, that's why it's so they can shoehorn more foreign aid, uh, into whatever the policy priority of the moment it is, uh, is in this case, it's, it's border security shoehorn, whatever foreign aid they need and is assuredly lining friendly pockets, if not, uh, their own. And if you think that's cynical, uh, I guess number one, you're listening to the wrong show then, but number two, I don't know what the, uh, the alternative explanation would be for this nonsense bill that again, we're told is a, a border security bill. At least that's what it was negotiated as. And it's a $118 billion bill, the package that has since been defeated, but this is what came out the other day. We'll get to the defeat in the Senate in a moment. $118 billion bill. Over half of it is for Ukraine. $60 billion for Ukraine. $14 billion for Israel. And $20 billion for the U.S. border. The only other explanation 
is that these people are actually this out of touch, that they think gobs and gobs more money for Ukraine and Israel will somehow sell this particular bill. Uh, it'll sell it in place of, I don't know, getting control of the border, which, again, we don't actually even need a bill to do. Uh, yes, Tim. Especially a couple of things for anyone that's doubtful that, oh, yeah, the funding is just an extra part of the border bill. No, when you see the listing of the details in the bill, I think funding is like three quarters of the way, uh, the um, border is like three quarters of the way down. It's all funding for like three quarters of the description of the bill until they get to, you know, three quarters down the go. Oh, yes, yeah, some border stuff as well. It's not a border bill. It's ridiculous. Well, and you can see that in Chuck Schumer's explanation of it, that you, you can see exactly where the priorities lie. And in the direction they're going now, you can see where the priorities lie. They're not even trying to hide how preposterous this nonsense is. Chuck Schumer appeared on MSNBC on Monday morning. He said, America's at a turning point. Now, why is America at a turning point? Is it because of the hordes of illegals that are flooding our country by the millions at this point? Robbing our resources, kicking our cops asses, flipping us off as they get taxpayer funded bus tickets across the country to do it all over again. No, that's not why we're at a turning point, at least not primarily. We are at a turning point because if we don't give still more money to Ukraine and Israel, U.S. soldiers will have to fight Putin and the Houthis all at the same time in some foreign battlefield. We're at a turning point in America. This bill, this bill is crucial and history will look back on it and say, did America fail itself? Why is it crucial? Well, if we don't aid uh, Ukraine, Putin will be walk all over Ukraine. We will lose the war and we could be fighting in Eastern Europe in a NATO ally in a few years. Americans won't like that. If we don't help Israel defend itself against Hamas, that perpetual war will go on and on and on. If we don't help humanitarian aid to the starving Palestinians in Gaza, hundreds of thousands could starve. And the border, everyone has said it's chaos, but too many Republicans, yeah. including Speaker Johnson, are just scared to death of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has said he wants chaos. Donald Trump has said, well, wait till I become president. That'll take at least a year. Ukraine could be gone. The border will get much worse. War in the Middle East will get worse, maybe bring, bringing, bringing us into it. He's doing it all for political reasons. Again, notice the order of priority there. Why is this crucial? Well, number one, Ukraine. Number two, Israel. Number three, Gaza. And number four, oh, there's, there's the border. Yeah, five seconds of border talk. Okay, thank you for the lip service. I appreciate that. And that order of priority is not an accident. It's not drawn from a hat. That is deliberate. Say nothing of the idea that Trump is creating and perpetuating these problems. That's just hilarious. You don't, again, you don't need a bill from Congress to secure the border. Joe Biden needs no other authority he already has the authority under the law, certainly doesn't care what Trump thinks. So if Chuck Schumer agrees that the border is chaos, as he just described, call the president, tell him to work on the chaos, the chaotic policies of catch and release. And anyone who says, I'm afraid to go back to my my home country, that's a that's an asylum prospect. And we should release them into the interior of the country pending some court date that could be years into the future. These are executive branch policies that could be reversed tomorrow. They weren't implemented in this way, or at least on this scale, 
under prior administrations and nothing about the law has changed. We haven't passed a new immigration bill to change that. It's just that that is the policy of the administration in place. Now, this border bill that, of course, is actually just a giant foreign aid package deservedly failed in the Senate uh, just a few hours ago. Let me, uh, where's my story here? Oh, yeah. Okay, so just to, the, the, this was a procedural vote to begin debate. Uh, 49 in favor, 50 against, falling well short of the 60 votes needed to advance. If you're curious about the four Republicans, uh, or there there were four Republicans, rather, uh, who, who joined Democrats in voting to advance the bill, if you're curious about who those are, that's Collins, Murkowski, Lankford, and Romney. So this giant package bill is now dead. What are they going to do next? Well, once again, the priorities are very clear. Hey, how about you just forget the foreign aid crap and negotiate something on the border? I know we don't need it, but I don't know. Maybe if you pass a bill that says, no, seriously, uh, it's closed. I guess that can't hurt. But no, that's not the priority. This CBS reporting has been updated because they they apparently there was some additional action or they had an additional vote or something. But earlier today, it read Democratic leaders, as in Chuck Schumer and company, of course, planned to move quickly to a vote on the foreign aid portions of the legislation, which some Republicans said they would also support. Now the story reads, the Senate then moved forward with a revised version of the bill that includes aid to Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and other national security priorities. So the movement has already started. What does that mean? Foreign aid remains intact. Border stuff, scrapped. Who cares? Gotta send money, gotta send resources overseas because the wars that are happening there are a bigger threat to your life and well-being in the United States than a completely out-of-control border situation in which literally anybody is walking over, in some cases, completely unobstructed. Or, if not completely unobstructed, actually facilitated by by the President of the United States and, and the Department of Homeland Security. So, uh, these people will get in line to send your money overseas again, and uh, they'll do nothing about the integrity of your actual country. At this point, I, I am starting to think that we should rely on the cartels themselves for security. At least if the cartels take over, they're going to help us with our politician problem. And I'm thinking maybe I look forward to the to the cartel future under this policy. There's no, there's no way it's much worse than, you know, life under Schumer and the rest. And then I thought, well, I've seen the cartel videos, actually. And it's actually it, it's quite worse. But if I had to pick between looking at Chuck Schumer's hideous face or watching a cartel torture video. That's a lot closer than it should be. Uh, Tim. So I just want to clarify because I didn't see this information until I checked the notes this morning. The conversation has been that this bill is going to be dead in the house on arrival. It's not even probably shouldn't even bother. But basically just to clarify, you're saying that they didn't even get it passed in the Senate. Cause I think a lot of people no. were saying, Look, it's going to go through the Senate because the Democrats are in charge of the Senate. They have the majority, but they couldn't even get it in that because that, no, that and you probably need, should you need, say something. You need 60 votes to advance in the Senate. They don't have that because of the Republican opposition and a few Democrats joined Republicans too. So it's dead in the Senate. And yeah, if it got to the House, I don't know, man, there might there might be enough Republicans to vote for the foreign aid stuff and most Democrats would be on board. You're going to have the... Um, the squad faction with questions about the Israel uh, aid, I'm sure. But for the most part, the foreign aid stuff is the one point of unity that uh, the parties have 
which should tell and you a lot. And just to clarify with how many votes they uh, they need, it's because of the type of bill? Because I think funding only needs a simple majority, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know the exact rules on that. Because it's not U.S. budget, that's... Well, no, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know why foreign aid stuff does, doesn't fall under that rule. Some Senate procedure person could clarify that, but I don't no, know exactly why on that particular issue. Anyway, uh, I want to leave plenty of time to talk about the news of the conviction of the mom of this school shooter in Michigan. This happened yesterday. Jennifer Crumbly, she is the mother of convicted Michigan school shooter Ethan Crumbly. She herself was convicted on four counts of involuntary manslaughter. One count for each person she killed, uh, or he killed, her, her son killed. She didn't kill anybody, but they're charging her with murder-adjacent crimes. Uh, she has a, a, a charge of involuntary manslaughter for each person that her son killed in the 2021 shooting uh, in what is now, I mean, it was already a historic prosecution. Now it's a historic conviction. She is the first parent to be held criminally liable for a mass shooting committed by her child. Now, I'm just going to walk through the facts of what happened in the shooting itself, just so we're clear. Uh, this happened back in December of 2021. Ethan Crumbly was then 15 years old. He was a student at Oxford High School in Oxford Township, Michigan. This is a Detroit suburb. Uh, Ethan Crumbly was sentenced to life without parole plus 24 more years in prison in December of last year. He was tried as an adult, which is an interesting piece of the case I want to talk about more in a minute. The 9mm handgun that Ethan Crumbly used in the shooting was purchased by his father, James Crumbly, Crumbly, excuse me, on the Black Friday prior, and Ethan was with him. Jennifer Crumbly, the mom who's now convicted, posted on social media that the gun was Ethan's new Christmas present, which, you know, there, I, I want to be understood in this segment. I am not uh, saying that these parents are extremely smart or angelic or something. It's never wise to post that sort of thing on social media that, Hey, I, I purchased this as a present for my underage son, which is sort of legally questionable, but okay. She's not, they're not charged with any sort of gun transfer crime or gun possession crime. It's so that, that particular piece is, is not directly relevant, but um, it's just one of those kind of wisdom things. Like you don't, you don't post things that are sort of potentially incriminating on social media like that. But she did, among other potentially unwise choices. After the shooting, uh, police executed a search warrant at the Crumbly home. They found other guns that were uninvolved in the shooting, and on a phone, two videos of Ethan Crumbly describing how he would shoot up the school the next day, and there was also a journal that had details on his desire to shoot up the school. Now, the day before the shooting, th this shooting is, is, as far as I'm aware, unique in that the shooter was encountered or he, he had meetings with school staff about discipline and, the, and he was let out of these meetings and then he went and committed the shooting. So they, they had him in their custody. They let him go. And then the shooting happened after that. Ethan Crumbly was called into the principal's office or it, it wasn't the principal's office, another official's office, I think guidance counselor um, to discuss behavioral problems. The behavioral problems were in part that Crumbly had been using his phone to search for ammunition and he told uh, he told the the guidance counselor that he and his mom had recently gone shooting at a range, which is also on video. That was part of the evidence at, at trial is him and his mom shooting at a gun range. School officials then called Jennifer, the mom, 
She didn't respond at the time, but then she did text her son later saying, lol, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn how you have to learn not to get caught. Again, she's not talking about a threat to shoot up the school at that point. That, That text in retrospect looks bad, but in context, she's talking about him searching for ammunition on his phone. Now, we might say that that itself is is bad, I suppose, if you if you want to take that as a warning sign. But she's not responding to say the 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 pictures that he drew, as we'll get to in a moment, or the ominous things that he wrote in a journal. She's just responding to the fact that teachers caught him searching for ammunition on a phone. Ethan was brought into that office again the day of the shooting after a teacher had discovered a violent drawing on Crumbly's desk. It was a drawing of a gun, and it said, The thoughts won't stop. Help me. There were other violent drawings and statements as well, apparently. Now, this guidance counselor with whom Ethan Crumbly was, had met called Ethan's parents. The school officials released him from their office and waited for the Crumbly parents. So they send Ethan Crumbly back to class after they had discovered him with drawings of guns and notes that if if they're not direct threats, they're troublesome. The thoughts won't stop, help me, that kind of stuff. The crumbly parents then show up. School personnel advise them that they need to seek counseling for their son immediately or school personnel will have to call CPS. Both of those meetings, as I mentioned, they were handled by guidance counselors. They were not elevated to the principal's office. But it turns out that they that uh, Ethan already had the gun on him, or at least it was stored somewhere. And and when he left the office, he then went back to went back to class. He got the gun. He committed the shooting that afternoon. Uh, yeah, Tim. So a couple of things in terms of the gun already being stored. I read a bunch of accounts that indicated it was actually in his backpack, and he was it in the meeting got- itself. Like he had it well, in a backpack at the meeting. I don't know if he had the backpack with him in the meeting, mm-hmm. but the indication I got from a lot of the stories was he thought that they were going to find the gun in the backpack. So I have to assume it probably was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the indication was that it was in the backpack, so whether he had to go get it. It sounded like he went into a bathroom and then came out of a bathroom, and that's when the shooting started. Um, but also in terms of the elevating it to the principal's office, I don't know what you've read, but the reports I read indicated that he had not actually been in trouble before. There was no disciplinary yeah, first. That's why they sent him back, back to class. Exactly. exactly. Because he didn't have so that, prior that, disciplinary problems. So I'm curious in terms of not elevating it to the principal's office in terms of, it sounds like this happened just over two days. So maybe they just didn't have a chance to elevate it, or maybe there wasn't procedures in place to elevate it that early. I don't know, but yeah. It's uh, just that's just my theory. So yeah, in, in either case, they just let him walk, and he walked out and committed the shooting, which uh, you know, as we'll get to, I think is is important when we're. I'm not accusing them of negligence, but I think when we're going to talk about <laughs> the looser way that we're applying negligence, now you have to ask questions about that. But um, we'll get to that in a moment. Returning back to the the facts of the case here. In announcing the charges against Ethan Crumbly, again, he was charged. I forget exactly what charges he got, murder or you know whatever, but they've he's since been convicted and he has life in prison plus without parole. But in announcing those charges, the prosecutor, Karen McDonald, told reporters that she was also considering charges against the Crumblies because, quote, responsible gun ownership is crucial to helping stop tragedies. And those who do not do that should be and will be held accountable. 
And then a few days later, she brought the charges and the crumbly parents fled again, unwise move, but they, they fled after initially saying they'd appear with their lawyers to turn themselves in. They did not. They were eventually located and arrested in a commercial building in Detroit. They were charged with involuntary manslaughter as in accidental killings that are the result of negligence or recklessness. The idea here legally is that the crumblies were reckless with their gun storage. Uh, and and not just the storage, but in not telling the school that they had guns in their home, not supervising their son close enough. So they are also criminally responsible for these killings. And that brings us all the way to this week when Jennifer Crumbly has now been convicted of four counts of involuntary manslaughter. James Crumbly has a separate trial coming up next month. The primary negligence that the prosecutors have focused on is that, uh, again, neither Crumbly parent informed the school that they had guns in the house. And while I certainly see a case that the parents didn't do a good job, anytime you're the parent of a school shooter, kind of by definition, you didn't do a good job. However, charging parents for their kids' acts, this gets into dicey territory. You can think a 16-year-old son sneaks some beer from his dad's fridge and then drives drunk and he hits and kills a person. Is dad criminally responsible? Maybe you dispute that analogy and say, well, that's not exactly correct because in this analogy, there would have had to have been warning signs that his son was going to drive drunk and the dad allowed him access to the beer regardless. All right, fine. I mean, I'll, I'll grant some of that. But uh, the point is, we are we are expanding the scope of responsibility here from the people who actually commit the crimes to people who, I guess, didn't do enough to stop the crime from happening. Maybe you want to say, well, that's it's different in the parental relationship. You have more of a responsibility to stop your kid from acting than you do some random stranger on the street, assuredly. And yeah, uh, that's that's true as well. But the other problem with that, as I mentioned, is that Ethan Crumbly was tried as an adult. So prosecutors have sort of double dipped a little bit in this case. Either Ethan Crumbly, when he committed this act, was a child or he wasn't. But we're seeing both effects that he was he was an adult when he committed these murders. But also in, in the context of his parents trials, he was a, a child who needed guidance and over whom they're responsible. Regardless, of course, I don't think this is really about big principles of the law and criminal responsibility. I think a lot of this is just about guns. The prosecutor said as much when she brought the charges. I hate guns, so I'm going, I'm, I'm going after people with guns. Or maybe there was some other distinguishing factor in this case. We got a little bit of insight into the jury's decision making when um, we got the, the classic demonstration of integrity of a jury member who just finished voting to convict someone on Tuesday and then flies halfway across the country to be in studio for a national TV spot early Wednesday morning. This jury four woman in this case did exactly that. Her name is Alex. I'm guessing that she's Elvira's daughter. She appeared on the Today Show this morning to explain what convinced her and the rest of the jury to convict Jennifer Crumbly. And, um, well, she didn't have a lot of specifics. 
The jury four-person in this first of its kind of its kind trial is with us now. Alex, good morning to you. We're not mentioning your last name for your own privacy reasons. What was the evidence that swayed you in the end? You said it wasn't an easy decision. This wasn't a not slam dunk. Not easy at all. Um, so speaking for myself, I know that each individual juror had their own opinion. This did this for one person. This convinced the other. For me, um, I just feel like... Jennifer didn't separate her son from the gun enough to save those lives that day. Was the jury immediately in agreement or what? how, how did it play out? It was not immediately unanimous and um, it was my responsibility to hear the concerns of those on either side and construct an argument either way uh i again elvira's daughter that's what that's what i think same skin tone same hair maybe same nails i didn't get a good glimpse but uh but to the points here first of all um <laughs> i i'll appear on national tv with my face completely unobscured but please don't use my last name my privacy is very important decide if you believe that person is honest or intelligent or not but the evidence, the evidence she described, what swayed you? What convinced you of Jennifer Crumbly's negligence? Well, uh, I just didn't feel like Jennifer did enough to separate her son from the gun. Okay, but where's where's the explanation of a specific act that she took or a specific act that she did not take that a, a responsible person would? I just feel like she didn't do stuff. Decide if you think... That is a fair, objective criminal standard. Whether Elvira's daughter thinks that you did enough to stop a crime or not. If you're curious what arguments were constructed to convince the holdouts on the jury, that really wasn't explained either. It's not exactly confidence-inspiring in, uh, either that the jury was apparently... Uh, the jury actually uh, apparently asked the judge if they could... Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me get the language here. If they could make inference about the evidence, basically. Uh, what did, uh, uh, here, here's what they said. The jury asked the judge during deliberations if they can infer anything from prosecutors not presenting Ethan Crumbly or others to explain specifically how he got access to the gun, which remains unknown, by the way. And the judge said no. The jury uh, can only consider the evidence admitted. And that evidence did not explain how, on that day, Ethan Crumbly got the gun. Even though it looks very possible that the jury just inferred how he got it and called Jennifer guilty on that basis because they were presented evidence that Jennifer handled the gun last. But it seems awfully hard to conclude negligence beyond a reasonable doubt if we don't actually know how Ethan came into possession of the gun that day. Was it just laying around on a coffee table? Did it have a post-it note on it that said for Ethan's school shooting lol? Was it actually locked up? We don't actually know. And in fact, at least in, in 2021, upon the charge of the parents, their lawyers were saying the gun was locked up. Quote some coverage in law and crime. That gun was actually locked, the defense attorneys said during an attempt to refute the state's case for the purposes of securing a lower bond. So when the prosecution is stating that child had free access to a gun, that's just absolutely not true. Now, if that's if that was provably correct, I imagine the defense would have hit that point hard. So either they couldn't prove it or there's some 
new information to the contrary. But the point is, the jury didn't get clarification. And if we don't know how Ethan got the gun that day, it's very hard to say parental negligence beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard here. Uh, yeah, Tim. So one thing I did find, I didn't find information that clarified specifically whether they argued that the gun was locked or not locked. But I did find in a news article in an outlet called the Detroit News, I'll just read uh, what I took from the article. The facts presented by the prosecutors have also changed, the attorneys wrote, uh, the defence attorneys, claiming that McDonald said at a press conference on December 3rd that the gun was stored unlocked in a drawer in James and Jennifer's bedroom. Okay. But then they, but then later in December, according to the filing, McDonald was asked during an interview on Good Morning America if the gun had been locked. She responded, according to the lawsuit, no, I'm not positive because these are just allegations, but the evidence shows at this point that he did have free access to the weapon. So just saying, I mean, admittedly, that's slightly like little parts of, of yeah, um, the, quotes, but the first one seems to indicate a definitive, we knew that it was unlocked, and the second one is a... Uh, well, I'm not 100% sure, yeah. but it seemed like probably. Well, that's the problem. They, they, There seems to be ambiguity or conflicting statements about that. And prosecutors did not present Ethan Crumbly to testify to say, this is how I came into possession of the gun on that day. So the jury does not know. And if the jury does not know, well, again, is there negligence beyond a reasonable doubt if they don't know how that access actually happened? Now, some questions about um, about that juror's appearance there. What about the husband's case, by the way? It's very interesting that this jury forewoman is speaking about what worked and what didn't in the prosecution of the mom and this guy's wife, Jennifer, considering there is a trial against him, the dad, James, that's in just a few weeks with these exact same facts and charges. It doesn't seem totally fair that she's just able to telegraph what was a successful prosecutorial strategy. I mean, I know that prosecutors are going to be able to, to piece that together and look at the case that was successful and try to replicate it. But here she is describing the inner workings of the jury in their actual deliberation saying, yeah, here's A, B, and C that really convinced people. How is it not tampering with his trial to make a public show of this? And how is it fair to let those prosecutors hear what the best strategy was. Even if you think the, the Crumblies are bad parents and that's not a point I'm going to argue against, mistakes were made. There are some troublesome precedents set by this new standard or troublesome possibilities. Note the intent of the prosecutor. Again, back when she filed these charges, uh, my intent is to hold gun owners responsible. Not murderers, not criminals, gun owners, generally. And the idea um, will now be that if you have a gun taken from you that is used for something bad, you will have criminal responsibility for not securing it. That's that is by statute in some jurisdictions. You have you have a legal obligation to secure it according to how the state directs you. And if you don't, and the gun is taken and used in a crime, then you are responsible, which is outrageous if you ask me. But uh, but that is a law that is being passed in a lot of states. Um. I think a lot of the idea here is to chill gun ownership, to chill gun possession. Hilariously, there's a um, a Boston law professor that is speaking with uh, a reporter in 
uh, a Boston University publication talking about how one of the one of the effects here will be that it will have disproportionate impact on people of color, or at least that's the implication. But th- this uh, law professor is quoted in the piece. I agree that if this makes uh, people take greater care around firearms, how could that be a bad thing? This professor says. But I've unfortunately seen well-intentioned laws and prosecutors or prosecutions result in the over-prosecution of the most vulnerable people, which overwhelmingly are people who have fewer resources. I think that's probably the most realistic way to stop this particular prosecutorial strategy. Once they realize that it disproportionately impacts communities of color who can't afford safe gun storage, this whole thing is over. Now, another, I want to emphasize this question again, just because I think it's an important one. How can the parents be negligent and responsible if Ethan is an adult for trial purposes? If Ethan is an adult for the purposes of his trial, as he was, there is a logical inconsistency in saying that his parents were then negligent in their supervision of him, at least partially, because either he was an adult at the time of the crime or he wasn't. And I understand it's a little more complicated than that because perhaps providing him the gun, regardless of his age, was negligent. But this case also, in that way, represents prosecutors double dipping. Uh, Ethan is an adult in his responsibility, but also the parents are responsible for him because he's not an adult. He's a troubled kid in uh, in their particular trials. Now, if we accept that the crumbly parents are negligent, on what basis do we say that the school officials themselves aren't negligent? The school officials saw these notes and they saw his drawings and they sent him back to class while telling the parents that he needs counseling immediately. The distinguishing factor that the prosecutors will make is that, well, uh, the Crumblies did not tell them that there are guns in the home. Then that's that's the negligence that they committed, that perhaps the school officials would not have been negligent themselves if they had that that knowledge. Well, you know, I don't know. They, they don't they saw the drawings. They saw the potential threatening words. They they are advising these parents that he needs immediate counseling and they still sent him back to class. If it's not the exact same negligence, isn't it fair to argue there's some negligence there, some responsibility if this is the logic that we're applying? And and if we're going to say that you now, that, that parents now have a duty to tell school administrators that they have guns in the home or potentially face criminal negligence charges, how do you think that's going to go? If I, if you go to your parent, to your kid's school and you're a parent, you say, by the way, I have guns in the home. You think you're going to be rewarded for that responsible action that they're now trying to cultivate? Or do you think that that will facilitate the targeting that they will just find another way to charge you criminally? Because if you accept the theory that a lot of this has to do with uh, a particular dislike of gun ownership, a particular dislike of gun possession, and there's an, an attempt to chill that sort of thing. Then yeah, you're you're not gonna be you're not gonna be rewarded for doing the responsible thing and telling school administrators that there are firearms in your home. Yes, Tim. Yeah, I just want to point out I could go to like basically the next room over. I could go to a drawer. I could grab a knife that could stab people. The idea that well they didn't tell them about a gun for a disturbed kid. Disturbed kid has other ways of committing violence. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it in seems fairness, a, he drew a picture of a gun. You know, it's like it was yeah, more yeah. like there was guns specificity in that way but yeah i mean we we don't know yeah. that he doesn't have a pocket knife on him and he could go stab someone in class too i'll take your point there was the well i mean there was also that kid that uh i think he got his switch taken away from him 
beat the crap out of a teacher. He used bare hands. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. So. Okay. But, um, yeah, did you have another thought? Sorry, I was just going to say one last thing. But even the drawing of a gun is not necessarily something you could correlate to that meant they had access to a gun. We have kids here in Australia that play, you know, shooting guns all the time. We don't really have ready access to guns for a lot of people. It's, you know, well, I, I guess, the, that's but that's their argument measure. is that parents should have disclosed that access. They knew of the access yeah, and they didn't disclose enough, it. Fair enough. But yeah, I'm not sure I really buy the argument, but. It's we're we're setting a, a weird standard and a weird precedent here. Another thing I want to talk about while we're talking about who's negligent, if I think it's if you don't want to say it's the same negligence, I think there's at least a shade of similar negligence on the part of the school who had met with this kid and evaluated what's going on and sent him back to class anyway. But just generally speaking, what about prosecutors and judges generally? Because if this is the new standard for negligence, uh, will this same standard get applied to agents of the state? Now, of course not. The rules don't apply to them. But the, the claim here is that the Crumbleys were negligent in not restraining or safeguarding their son. Well, these prosecutors and judges across the country who are consistently releasing violent criminals back onto the street who go on to commit more violent acts, why are they not worthy of charges of criminal negligence in doing that? They had reason to believe that a violent attack would happen because they've already seen one, and yet they release people to go back and do it anyway. So if Alvin Bragg and Chase Boudin and Kim Gardner, and I know uh, Boudin and Gardner aren't even in office anymore, but they've done enough damage. If all if these people and all the rest of these insane prosecutors who release violent people back onto the street, if they all end up in the same jail cell right next to the Crumblies, then fine. Fair's fair. The rules have been applied consistently. Again, none of this is to say that the Crumblies did nothing wrong. I certainly think they made mistakes if their kid ended up being a school shooter, something went awry. It's just to say that we're creeping on legal territory that's decided by ambiguous feelings, uh, as were described by the jury forewoman, rather than objective standards. And it's beyond just the criminals themselves. We now um, go, if we, if we go at people who are just uh, just present at a crime, they're in the presence of a crime. If we go after them because they should have stopped it, is the premise here. Well, you're going to get a lot more people targeted. You're going to get a lot of targeted prosecutions, in fact, because that is such a wide net. People who were sort of tangentially related to a crime and maybe could have stopped it if they took steps A, B, and C, but didn't. If you're going to make them criminally liable, that is such a wide net of people that there's no way to use standards like this in a way that isn't targeted. There's no way it could possibly be applied consistently because there are so many potential people to apply that to. What does that mean? It ends up being a very broad way for prosecutors to get who they want, not go after particular crimes that they want, not actually bring justice for particular crimes, but just target people. And, um, you know, I, I get it. People are... There are a lot of people arguing, you know, don't overcomplicate it. These people were irresponsible and bad and their kid's a school shooter and they don't deserve any apologetics. Listen, I'm not, I'm not, what I'm worried about is, is not necessarily the fate of these parents personally. Again, I, I think they made a lot of mistakes, but if, if we can't see the weapon that is being developed here, I think uh, we're kidding ourselves. Like, like the idea that this is just going to be used to only going to be used to go after uh, wildly irresponsible school shooter parents. 
No, this is uh, this is uh, this is going to be an expansion of prosecutorial powers well beyond that. Uh, Tim, you had a thought. Yeah, it's also kind of wild because a lot of these sorts of people are also against the good guy with the gun. So it seemed kind of yeah. contradictory to say, say, why didn't you intervene in this situation? But also we shouldn't have people that intervene in this sort of situation. It's just, I don't know, it seems weird. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that point. Uh, yeah, you must intervene, but no, not like that. Because if you intervene and actually stop the threat, well, then, you know, see uh, Daniel Penny in New York. He didn't even use a gun. But if you intervene and stop the threat, you're also a criminal, which is exactly what we're watching. Uh, so, all right. I, you know, I, I thought I could complete the challenge, but I couldn't. We're at the top of the hour. And I wanted to talk Trump immunity and that decision from the appeals court, but there'll be plenty of time for Trump legal challenges at later dates. So I will forgo that. And uh, I have a couple of responses to email questions that I left over from last week. If you want to read me the questions, Tim. Yeah, no worries. So the first question is from Jason Fisher. And Jason says, hello. Hello, Jason. Uh, What's your thoughts on the Illinois gun ban challenge in federal court changing the Protect Illinois Communities Act, which he views as an oxymoron name, there is a registration requirement by January 1st. Will the court stop this or are blue states immune from the Constitution and it's time to get out of those states? I'm in Washington state with the same law, only five rifles for sale here. All others are old relic guns, even California legal rifles and no go. Yeah, this story is news to me. I'm usually pretty up on gun news, so uh, I don't know how I missed this one, but I did. Uh, last month, the Supreme Court declined to take a challenge to Illinois' law banning assault weapons. And as Jason says, this is called the Protect Illinois Communities Act. And the law restricts the sale of semi-auto, quote-unquote, assault weapons and large-capacity mags, as in mags over 10 rounds for rifles and 15 rounds for handguns. People who had these weapons prior to the passage of the law, they, they're grandfathered in, but they have to submit an affidavit to police. So I, I guess the de facto registry. Apparently, uh, there were no dissenting opinions issued from the Supreme Court. Uh, but uh, So I don't see any, any reasoning as to why the decline from the Supreme Court to hear this. I am pretty surprised that uh, what has been a pretty gun rights friendly court would pass on an assault weapons issue, since uh, obviously that's a, a hot one across the country. Remember in um, summer of 2022, right before the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court issued the Bruin decision, striking down New York State's restrictions on concealed carry permits and establishing a Second Amendment right to carry a gun in public generally. But Bruin was important Additionally, because it established uh, a new Second Amendment analytical framework for federal courts, gun rights restrictions must be consistent with historical tradition at the time the amendment was ratified. And this assault weapon nonsense doesn't seem consistent with historical tradition at the time the Second Amendment was ratified. But I guess the justices disagree for some reason or don't view this as a worthwhile use of their time Uh, to the question of whether you should get out of blue states. Yes. Is the short answer. The longer answer is, uh, I know it's a lot easier said than done when you have jobs and families and lives that are established there. But it's very clear that these places are only going to get worse until your gun rights are absolutely paramount. Actually, they're going to get so bad that you need your gun rights and you have none. You don't want to be disarmed on that day. So make the move while it's just uncomfortable 
rather than an actual emergency would be my advice. And um, I have no desire to leave where I live. I love it too. Uh, but I love my family more. And if, if a place is hostile to the protection of my family, well, then uh, it's not a place I'm going to live. So Godspeed. And thanks for the info on that. Uh, Nomad before, is the second question. Yeah, he is. But before I move on to that, am I remembering correctly? Cause this is something a lot of people have the argument over. Have you previously argued staying where you live and fighting for it? Or am I misremembering? Am I maybe thinking I I mean, someone I'm, else? I'm sure we've probably considered both sides of the argument over time. Uh, and it, and it also, I suppose it defend, it depends like stay and fight on what terms, you know, uh, if you're telling me that I cannot defend my family, I know it's not quite that way. Cause they're saying, Oh, actually you can have certain guns in your home. As long as they fit, you know, they fit criteria A, B and C. I guess what I'm saying is to the extent that you can fight, but I think there's wisdom in recognizing when a place is so hostile that it, it's not clear that, that your family has a safe future there and get out. I just, I, I've probably argued staying and fight in the past where I was more optimistic about the victory and I'm not optimistic about political victories. I just, especially in places like Illinois or California, uh, it's quite bad in a lot of these places, but it's not bad enough for voters to try something different. And I just, I just don't see those States turning around before it gets dangerously bad it already is dangerously bad as far as crime goes um yeah i don't know i, no, I, I, I can't just, remember exactly what i've said in the past but i'm sure i've said cur- sure i've reversed a little bit or changed my mind yeah, somehow. I, was, I was just curious because i know it's an argument people have made and i was positive you're one of them but maybe i'm remembering incorrectly anyway on to nomad yeah uh nomad says what are your thoughts on hr 1525 fair act of 2023 to limit civil asset forfeiture, uh, and he sent you a link on Twitter. I don't know if you saw it, but um, yeah. I don't. Uh, as far as it just uh, thank you, Nomad. As far as sending me information, the best way to do that, by the way, is is email. Uh, Twitter, I just kind of use to promote my stuff. I don't necessarily interact a ton on Twitter. So if you got information for me or you actually like to communicate with me, my email inbox is the way to do that. And you can find uh, uh, a box to do that on my website or you can find the email address itself on my website matt, matt at matt christensen that's, that's a lot to spell so just head on over to the website you'll find it there um yeah but this bill is also news to me now civil asset forfeiture is unconstitutional nonsense legalized theft is another way to put it though the government does all kinds of legalized theft so it's maybe not unique in that regard but civil asset forfeiture in more plain terms is police take your stuff because it is suspected to have been involved involved in or used in a crime. They do this not only without a conviction, often without even a charge. And then you have to spend a fortune in a legal dispute to get your stuff back. And that process isn't just expensive, it's also a reversal of the presumption of innocence. You have to prove that your stuff was not involved in crime and then you get it back. Not the government proving that you were involved or at least the stuff was involved in crime actually. Now how it's, it's handled in state law enforcement varies from state to state, but the federal government does this crap too. And I became aware of this recently in the story of that FBI raid on a Beverly Hills private vault. I posted a video about this a few months ago. 
And uh, there's a recent development in the case. So this is a private vault in Beverly Hills is in a place where you can go and rent out a secure box to store your valuables, a lockbox. The owners of the vault in this case were suspected of participating in crime. And so the FBI took all the stuff from the boxes. They, they took stuff from uninvolved people who were simply renting space there. And this would be like if the bank manager at the, at the bank that you use, the bank manager was caught committing a crime. So the FBI drains your bank account, even though you have no involvement with him except your business relationship. Now, incidentally, I mentioned the new development. An appeals court just ruled in that case and found the FBI violated hundreds of private citizens' constitutional rights with the raid and the stealing of their stuff. So maybe I'll talk more about that decision later. Uh, I haven't read up on the specifics of it. Now, as far as civil asset forfeiture, the pros, why do we do this? I've spoken about the cons here, obviously. Uh, Those who argue in favor of this policy say, well, it's a valuable law enforcement tool to stop crime in progress or potentially crime from happening in the future. Maybe it's also a massive uh, power for abuse. And in general, I'm not a big fan of a policing philosophy about stopping crime before it happens. We have a justice system, and that means pursuing justice after crime happens in response to crime, not kicking down doors and taking stuff on mere suspicion to prevent future crime. As far as this new bill in Congress, it was introduced last year by uh, Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin of impeaching Trump fame and Michigan Republican Tim Wahlberg. It did pass through committee. I'm not sure what happened to it after that. Never brought to the floor, I guess. Under this bill, only uh, federal courts could impose civil asset forfeiture. So taking your stuff without a court order would not be allowed. Feds would have to prove to the judge that the target of the forfeiture knew or should have known that their property was being used in a crime instead of the lower court standard that the property was probably, uh, or not the lower court, the lower standard that exists currently where police can just believe that your property was probably connected to wrongdoing on their whim. There's got to be a court assessment. Uh, Now, without reading all the details, am I in favor of limits on the feds stealing your stuff because they feel like it? Yeah, that, that sounds like a good thing that we should do. We should limit that, in other words. Some would argue that this law is unnecessary because uh, we already have a supreme law to prevent this sort of unreasonable search and seizure, and that would be called the Fourth Amendment. But uh, apparently it's not enough. Apparently we need a statute, too. The feds um, taking your stuff because they think it was probably involved in crime is, uh, I would say that's fairly argued as unreasonable. So, uh, yeah, I would love to see this bill pass. It's not getting a lot of movement right now for whatever reason, but uh, we'll see if there is any in the future. Thank you for the question, Nomad. Uh, Again, if you'd like to send an email question to the show, you can do that through the contact page of my website, mattchristiansonmedia.com slash contact. Look for the MC Hour questions box. That's where we accept our email questions. And with that, let's uh, catch up on Super Chat and call it a show. Look at that. I'm only 10 minutes over. I'm, I'm improving. So just a little housekeeping before we grab the chats. Um, uh, Ninja Kitty just posted the contacts for people that do want to send a thing. Just scroll up the chat a little bit. Uh, and he's also looking for the link for the video of the civil asset forfeiture video that you did a few weeks wow. ago. So on it. Well, thanks for the help. 
yeah, he do, he's very good at uh, putting links in. So thank you, Ninja Kitty. Okay, let's start with the Rumble Rants. So from from the you need a new name from GR Token. Yeah, we have to be careful Slur. on this show. <laughs> no <laughs> S words. Jogger, please. Yeah. Nobody here should be watching the gay FL. Okay. Find a new league or find something else to watch. Pick another league and stop giving your money to people who hate you. Yeah, I guess you have to go UFC at this point. <laughs> I just I want that UFC fighter to be the uh the press secretary. No, I mean yeah. I, I take your point. Um I also know that if you want any sort of entertainment form, you're going to have to settle for some people who, who hate you, unfortunately, or hate your politics or whatever. I just wish these people could put down politics for five seconds, but increasingly centers of entertainment cannot. So I don't know. We need a not, a not gay FL, uh, but nobody besides the NFL seems to succeed anyway. Thank you, Mr. Yeah. S word. Uh, and then another one from the same user. This is a Soros gun control DA prosecutor, and the Supreme Court should overturn these cases. Coming Detroit uh, jury, yes, it would only be fair to convict school staff too. I yeah, I if if we're making this negligence stretch, everybody who potentially could have intervened but didn't, who had knowledge to know there was a risk and didn't intervene, this is the standard. So, yeah, thank you, Mister S Word. Appreciate it. Okay, Ninja, don't worry about it. Ninja's having trouble finding the video. I don't think it will have civil forfeit assets in the name. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but... some, yeah, I would try like FBI. It's FBI something. Like FBI stole millions from FBI seized millions. In fact, it's um, now that I think about it, it was it's a video that's on Tenet. I was thinking maybe it was older, so it was on my channel. It's on Tenet. It was within the last few months. Yeah, yeah, it was, de it was definitely on Tenet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So maybe try FBI um, Ninja. Uh, it's not, not massively important. I just thought it would be convenient for people that want to look at the video that yeah. maybe had missed it. So anyway, uh, if we so that looks like it's it for Rumble. If we just open up these YouTube ones, bring up Seal. There we go. Um, so first from Ardubu. I'm sure I've mispronounced that. Uh, not very many people even voted in the NV Republican primary because it was four figs, five figs. The I is crucial. Careful. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, 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 well, I have the results. No, I don't. I closed that window. I forget how many people even voted, like 50,000 or something like that. It, it was, it was, it was in the tens of thousands. It was not so tiny that it was below that benchmark. But yeah, this was not, uh, this was not on the scale that many other states that uh, our actual contests uh, are and would have been. And we'll certainly see more people participate in the caucus tomorrow, I would imagine. Thank you, yeah, I mean, R. Dubu. I mean, I, I mean, I looked at the numbers and thought that doesn't seem very low. But then again, I don't know how big the population is of the area. So maybe it is uh, relatively so. Nevada is very sparsely populated except for Las Vegas and a little bit around Lake Tahoe. Other right. than that, like there's a lot of nothing in Nevada. A lot of open yeah, space. Yeah. In fact, the federal government, if I understand, the federal government owns most of the land in Nevada. Yeah. It's just empty, federally owned land. But, uh, yeah. All right. And, uh, yeah, and one more from Ryan Hass. Forgive the perhaps dumb question, but how far reaching would the precedent set 
uh, with the precedent set by the mum's conviction be? If a jury feels like more could be done, everyone in a criminal's life is now responsible. Yeah, that's the danger. And that, that's, yeah, you're exactly right. That's what I worry about, that if people who potentially could have intervened and didn't are now suddenly some degree of responsible, yeah, th that's just a tool to go after people that you want to go after. It's kind of a six degrees of separation type thing. I know people who support this conviction will say, no, it's not. It's about parental responsibility. Okay, I mean, I will grant to you that parental responsibility is something different than just my interaction with the rest of people I know out in my daily life, that I have a unique responsibility over my kid that does not apply to them. I will grant you that point. I'm just, just call me skeptical that prosecutors who are seeking particular outcomes, like I believe this prosecutor is, are going to restrain themselves to stick only with the parental uh, relationship. That is to say, let's say the next mass shooter is 25 years old and he has a bunch of friends on a discord server who saw that he posted some sketchy shit before he did sorry i shouldn't swear on this <laughs> i'm trying to keep this uh trying to keep this show clean as i as i said before it's professionals some sketchy stuff he posted on the discord server and uh prosecutors then decide well uh those people on the discord server should have known that he was about to commit a shooting and they did not intervene do we call that yeah, negligence? Yeah. Do we do we say that they have potentially committed a crime as well? I know that they're, they're not the person's parents, but are uh, do we believe this prosecutor is going to draw that line at just the parent-child relationship? I have my doubts. Well, the other frustrating thing is how many people on the left kind of all of a sudden don't really care about um parental parental sort of responsibility when it comes to the parent enacting something they don't agree with, you know. How dare uh, you yeah, say well, that your child can't cut off the, you know, seize, can't seize cut off the junk? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's not even, that's not even consistent. So, okay. Oh, awesome. Ninja found the uh, FBI link. So it's just in the chat there, guys, if you want to check it out. All right. Well, thank you for that, Ninja. But uh, that'll do it on chat, okay. right? We're all caught up. It looks like it. Nothing right. new Thanks, in Appreciate Rumble. It. And I'm just having a look. Nothing new in YouTube by the looks of it. All so. right. Well, let's uh, let's call it an evening then. Appreciate everybody uh, hanging out with us tonight. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, whoops, there we go. There's my outro music. If I could produce my own show correctly. It's always a difficult thing, you know. But thanks for tuning in tonight. Appreciate uh, your support for the show. Appreciate your listen. And if you'd like more to listen to, Head on over to my website as well, mattchristensenmedia.com. You can find the rest of my videos on Tenet. You can find my Sunday show that I do on my own channel. Lots more to listen to. This has been the Matt Christensen Hour on Tenet Media. See you back here next Wednesday. Great night.